Let's get it. Wednesday, November 13th, 2019. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. The podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. To the veterans listening, hope you enjoyed your Veterans Day holiday. I spent the Marine Corps birthday on the road, finally moving my household goods. I was driving a big old U-Haul, listening to Outlaw Country. And on Veterans Day, I took my father-in-law out to a number of establishments. He's never done any of that. Uh, And it was really great to see him get out and interact with other veterans. And I hope you had a chance to do the same especially with the World War II veterans who are quickly fading into history. And it's important to connect with them before they do so we can tell their story. Also, a big thank you goes out to you as well. Last week, the viewership of Dale Dye's episode propelled Born the Battle to a top 12 rating in the iTunes government category. Now, it was only for a day, and ideally I'd like to be up there longer. But as a community, I am sure that we're going to get there. How do I know? It's the second time in as many weeks We broke the top 20, and that directly goes to your support, so thank you. And of course, getting higher in those algorithms goes to both how many times we are listened to and how many ratings and reviews we get. Speaking of which, we received two new reviews this week. This one is from Stereo number six. Hashtag six, number six. New to the show, like it. Good to hear about our brothers. Thanks, Steve. U.S. Navy, retired. Well, Steve, welcome to the show, and I hope you're listening to more. Uh, And the last one is from E. Kemp 252. Really good. I'm new to the show. Started with the Dale Die episode. Friggin' awesome is all I can say. Semper Fi. Well, Semper Fi, back to you, brother. Uh, Hope you had a good birthday. Keep coming back for more episodes, and you can always keep giving feedback via email at podcast at va.gov. Speaking of the emails, uh, speaking of the email, we got one this week. This one is from former guest Denise Loring. She's uh, with Camp Valor Outdoors. Just finished the podcast. I drove by Red Cloud Range on Range Road on Fort Benning for years. I knew he was a Native American who has done some great stuff, but never took the opportunity to do any research. So glad to hear your piece on Red Cloud. What an amazing story of courage, love of country, love of brothers in arms and the fight to the death belief sent chills up my spine and tears to my eyes. And yes, I heard about your last bit with Dale Dye. Great interview. Loved it. I think she's referring to the after the show show that was on the Dale Dye episode. Uh, Denise, always, always welcome your emails. All right, this month we have five news releases. Some are short, so I'm going to read them all. First one says, for immediate release, VA equips 200,000 veterans with life-saving naloxone. I think that's how you say it. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Opioid Overdose Education and Naloxone Distribution, or OEND program, announced that that from May 2014 to September 2019, the program issued naloxone, a medication used to block the effects of a potentially fatal opioid exposure to more than 200,000 veterans. In addition to issuing the medication, VA's OEND program takes a, takes a multidisciplinary approach which educates vulnerable patients about opioid risk and provides them 
with naloxone. VA has also standardized patient and provider education, clinical guidance, clinical decision support tools, identifying patients in danger of an overdose, and national clinical notes to improve care post-overdose. 116 facilities have equipped over 2,700 police officers with naloxone, and 56 facilities have placed naloxone in over 650 AED cabinets with 126 opioid overdose reversals. VA's Opioid Safety Initiative has made significant progress reducing resilience on opioid medication for pain management by more than 53% since 2012, and offers pain care options that are safer and more effective in the long run, such as yoga, acupuncture, tai chi, and and behavioral health approaches. VA also offers specialty substance substance use disorder treatment at every healthcare system using evidence-based psychosocial treatments and medications to effectively treat opioid use disorders and other substance use disorders. For more information on the OEND, visit www.pbmpapabravomike.va.gov forward slash pbm forward slash Academic Detailing Service, all one word, no spaces, no underscores, forward slash opioid underscore overdose underscore education underscore and underscore naloxone, N-A-L-O-X-O-N-E underscore distribution dot A-S-P. That is a long website address. All right, next one says, for immediate release, veterans can now access information through health records on the iPhone. In honor of Veterans Month this November, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs is rolling out nationwide access for veterans to their VA health data alongside their health records from other healthcare providers in one place in the health records section of the health app for iPhone. Patients will now be able to see their medical information from various participating institutions including VA, so not only VA, but including VA, organized into one view, covering allergies, conditions, immunizations, lab results, medications, procedures, and vitals. And they will receive notifications when their data when their data is updated. This capability has developed through VA's Veterans Health Application Program Interface, mouthful, first revealed in February and has topped 2,000 users. The Veterans Health API allows private sector organizations to create and deploy innovative digital applications that help veterans access their health records in new ways. Health records data is encrypted and protected with users' iPhone passcode, Touch ID, or Face ID. Beyond this effort with Apple, VA plans to partner with other organizations to bring similar capabilities to other mobile platforms. So those on Android... And anything else, I think, I don't know if anybody still has a Microsoft phone. You're still going to have to wait for that capability. All right, the next one says, for immediate release, VA and pet partners combine efforts to bring therapy animal services to more veterans. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs partnered with the nonprofit organization Pet Partners in October to help improve the quality of life, social engagement, and health of veterans by increasing access to animal-tested activities, AAA for short, of course, we like our acronyms, and Animal Assisted Therapy, AAT for short, services throughout the VA healthcare system. Pet partners and VA will train therapy animal teams, encourage VA medical facilities to establish and expand trained 
therapy animal visitation and provide AAA and AAT programs to give patients connection, comfort, and joy that comes from spending time with animals. Quote by the secretary, and then it says, the partnership also provides veteran communities with volunteer opportunities and helps integrate veterans and their families into pet partners activities and events. A wide range of research and studies suggest that the animal-human bond can lead to lower blood pressure, reduced risk for cardiovascular disease, lessened anxiety, pain, and loneliness. And you're going to have a direct example of that in this episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. Time with therapy animals not only promotes physical and mental health, but supports wellness across variables such as social interaction, rate of recovery, and personal motivation. For more information, visit va.gov forward slash health partnerships, all one word. All right, the next one says, for immediate release, VA video series teaches veterans how to use new tool when filing disability claims online. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs has created a video series on YouTube for veterans to learn about and apply for benefits earned through a new video tutorial series completed in October. The tutorials describe steps veterans can follow to complete disability compensation claims online using the new digital tool. To visit the full video tutorial series, you can go to YouTube and you can search for Digital 526 Disability Compensation Tool, and there's a whole playlist. And I'm also going to put a link on the blog for this episode at blogs.va.gov. And for more information on disability compensation, you can go to benefits.va.gov forward slash compensation. All right. And finally, for immediate release, VA Center for Women's Veterans celebrates their 25th anniversary. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Center for Women's Veterans commemorated 25 years of providing advocacy for America's women veterans November 7th at the VA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Established by Congress in November of 1994, the center monitors VA's administration of benefits and services to women veterans to ensure they receive equal access to VA programs. And they also provide support to VA's Advisory Committee on Women's Veterans, which was created to advise the VA Secretary on the needs of women's veterans. For more information on the center and how to get involved, you can go to va.gov forward slash women vet, all one word. All right. This week's interview is pretty special. He's an Army veteran, been on two deployments. On the second deployment, he survived an IED blast. He survived a divorce during a challenging four-year recovery and is now trying to become the first, the first Purple Heart recipient to climb the seven summits of the world. And currently, he's at six of seven. During said challenge, he survived the Nepal earthquake while he was on Mount Everest. Not much more to be said. Some pretty incredible stuff. So without further ado, I bring to you Army veteran Benjamin Breckheimer. You, Benjamin, you live in Charlotte? Yeah, just outside of Charlotte in TKK, South Carolina. It's literally right across the border. I, I just moved from there. Oh, really? Uh, as a matter of fact, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm going down there to, this weekend to finally, after a year, to get my household goods. Oh, very cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was living up in Huntersville. Yep, I know exactly where that's at. I have a good friend uh, with combat flags, Dan Barra, who lives in Davidson. Are you originally from Charlotte? 
No, I'm originally from Wisconsin. How'd you get to Charlotte? Long story short, uh, one of the surgeons I deployed to Iraq with, who ended up becoming my surgeon after I got wounded in Afghanistan, uh, moved out here after you retired and uh, invited me that once I medically retired to move out here and work with him. And I decided to take the leap and work with him again. So it's kind of a weird roundabout (laughs) story in the long scheme of things. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on, Benjamin. You're working with the medic who helped you in Afghanistan during your attack. I'm No, I'm actually uh, working with the surgeon who, um, once I got back to stateside in uh, Brook Army Medical Center, he was my surgeon once I got back there. And, uh, gotcha. Yeah. Very good. But yeah, very good. you know, it's, it's very eerie how things like that work. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's just the brother, brotherhood of service, I think. Yeah. Everybody looks to their own. So, well, before we jump around too much, let's go back to the, to the beginning. So like we ask every uh, guest on Born the Battle, uh, when and why did you decide to serve in the first place? You know, it's a very cliche answer, but, uh, you know, we were all hurting after September 11, 2001. And uh, I was a senior in high school uh, and unfortunately got to witness the towers fall uh, over the news media, as did pretty much everyone else. But um, it yeah. kind of yeah. got me back to thinking when I was a child. And um, I remember watching news footage of Desert Storm kickoff, and I was not even seven years old at the time. And, uh, you know, just seeing that awesome show of force and I, I don't know, there was something inside me that knew that I was going to join the military. And if there was ever a war that I really wanted to have that experience and be a part of it. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, September 11, 2001 was, the um, you know, ignition we needed to uh, the catalyst. if the, you will. Yeah. The catalyst, that's a better word. And, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, we all had that, you know, need to, uh, do something and, uh, you know, not going to college, uh, didn't have any desire to go to school for four more years. And I decided to raise my right hand and take the call of duty. So to say, got you. What, uh, what year did you join? You said you were a senior in 01. Yeah. 2002. Uh, oh, so right after, yeah. right after. Yeah, 2002, I graduated in June, and then I entered the delayed entry program in November of that year, and then finally went to Fort Benning in 2003 in March. No, we're pretty close. I joined in uh, July, July 28th of 03. Okay, yeah. So while you were while you were in Benjamin, uh, give me either a best friend or a great or your greatest mentor while you were in. Oh, Dr. Joseph Shu. Uh, by far, that's no, that was quick. Yeah, that's not even uh, not even something I needed to think about. Why? Why him? So, you know, this is a little, I guess, uh, bullet point in my whole grand story. But uh, deployed to Iraq in 2005 uh, to Baghdad, working at Even Cena Hospital in the Green Zone as an operating room specialist. And um, this doctor, uh, orthopedic doctor Joseph Shu, comes along. Uh, six months into our deployment to join us and uh, working with him and seeing the care he provided for our wounded uh, service members and not even just our service members, but, you know, Iraqi civilians, children, contractors, uh, just seeing the care yeah. he put into everyone uh, really hit me. You know, I've never seen anyone with such compassion and just wanting to do 
wanting to exhaust every possible thing to help save life, limb or eyesight. And, uh, you know, we became really good friends over that six months we were together. And, uh, uh, fortunately enough, we were both stationed at Brook Army Medical Center. So we got to work together back there. And, um, you know, during that year in Iraq, it was probably one of the most, uh, satisfying, but, uh, mentally taxing years I've ever had in my life, just for the sole fact that, you know, at 20 years old, uh, that's the first time I ever saw somebody pass on. And when it's our own mm. service members, it really uh, hits you hard. And I remember the very first uh, individual that passed on our OR table. And uh, it just didn't seem fair to me. Um, my thoughts were ranging from, you know, this kid, and I say kid lightly, uh, could be 18 years old. Yeah. Uh, he could have a family, a wife of his own. And here I am safe in the green zone while he's fighting for my freedom, you know, um, you know, tip of the spear. And uh, I really, when I got back to the States, I kind of lost that uh, feeling of accomplishment, so to say, you know, you felt like you were doing something when you were deployed. And then when you get back, it's kind of nine to five job as Thanks. usual. <laughs> as many flaws as I see in the hurt locker, it's like that scene where you're in the, the grocery store. Yeah, you exactly. Know? It's like, I'm buying milk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Everything else just seems so pointless. Um, but I, when he saw that and, you know, during that year, I kind of made a decision that I was going to change my job when I got back to the States. And uh, when he found out I was voluntarily reclassing to a cavalry scout, he wasn't too happy about it. And, uh, yeah. What was the, uh, what was the MOS before uh, operating room specialist? Yeah. Operating room specialist. So gotcha. Gotcha. it would be uh, a surgical technician would be the civilian equivalent basically. Okay. Gotcha. And, so you were going to go into calf scout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just remembered from the deployment seeing those guys come in and they just look so cool all, you know, geared up and in their strikers. And I was like, you know what? Uh, that's something that I want to do. These guys are on the front lines, you know, along with our infantry and our uh, heavy hitters, so to say. And, uh, you know, that's felt like I needed to do that. I need to do my part, so to say, do a little bit more. Yeah. And um, when Dr. Shu <laughs> found out I was reclassing and leaving him, so to say, he, uh, <laughs> he said, you better not end up on my OR table. <laughs> <laughs> and i think you know where this is gonna go <laughs> yeah you you ended up in uh, on our table how many okay so how many deployments did you had you had one to iraq i had a uh, year-long to iraq and then i deployed to afghanistan in 2009 and that was uh only three months deployment unfortunately yeah talk to me about that uh you you were with the striker brigade uh was that out of fort lewis yeah it was with the uh, fifth brigade second infantry division I asked that because I'm also from Washington State. So oh, there's a lot of parallels. That's awesome. <laughs> I I absolutely loved Washington State. I loved Fort Lewis. Uh, I know it gets hammered a lot because people don't like the rain, but I think uh, you know the sunny days by far outweigh that. <laughs> oh, uh, a, a green, a sunny green day in Washington State in August. Yeah, uh, I long for those days, even today, even even you know. 15 years later, oh, you know, not growing. I mean, I grew up there, but I'm, I haven't lived there since since I was 18. I still miss uh, salmon fishing and, and crabbing. Oh, and yeah. yeah, all that all that stuff out there that you can do in the woods, because that's outside of Seattle. It's it's almost a, a 
just, an outdoorsman's dream. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, so you did deploy in 2009 with the striker, striker brigade for three months. Unfortunately, like you said, yeah. Um, talk to me about that deployment. Uh, you know, it was, it was exactly what I was expecting. Um, you know, that saying, be careful what you wish for. Uh, I'm a very firm believer in it because, uh, you know, I was outside the wire doing patrols probably every other day in our strikers. And, uh, you know, it was like clockwork for three months. And then, uh, you know, on this particular day, September 13th, 2009, um, we had a different mission. It was to go uh, pay for damages that were done the previous night to a farmer's irrigation ditch. And um, Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. So it was kind of one of those things where it, it just kind of threw everything out of whack, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was my platoon sergeant's driver at the time and, uh, the rear vehicle just kind of driving along like usual, uh, in our convoy. And, you know, we were joking over our CVs and the next thing I know, everything goes black. Like I hit a brick wall and, um, you know, mm-hmm. unfortunately I hit a improvised IED. Um, I was, you know, driving either too far to the left or too far to the right of the tracks in front of me. And, uh, the blast went off underneath me. And, uh, you know, it was kind of one of those things where, um, I'm very glad I remember everything, uh, just because in a sick kind of way, I think it was an awesome experience. And I say that only because I was the only person to get wounded. <laughs> um, Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was very lucky, <laughs> you know, when I got back to the States, I didn't think I was, but, in retrospect, I look back at everything that has happened and it's opened so many doors for me. Um, but this particular day, uh, just took me out of the fight. Uh, I had a concussion. Uh, my right eardrum was blown, a couple of vertebrae fractures, a minor pelvic fracture. Uh, both femurs were fractured. Oh, man. And uh, my lower right leg was, uh, you know, when I started to come to, uh, you know, I was choking on dirt, dust. Everything was hazy. Um, and I just kind of was giving myself the overall check and I didn't see anything below my right knee. So I kind of wrote it off as my lower right leg was gone. But what had happened was the blast that went off underneath me forced that armor plate underneath the striker to push up into my legs. And somehow my right leg got sneaked into the engine compartment directly to the right. <laughs> and, um, Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's how that's, uh, well, why I didn't see anything below my knee because it was, <laughs> you know, just kind of hidden in the engine compartment. And um, so you you came to in the Humvee. I did, yeah, in the Striker. In the Striker. Yeah, yeah it's um, you know I, I think back to like hearing stories and knowing some people that you know after a blast goes off they're like able to function and do all this stuff. But at that time for me, you know, I was just so I, I wasn't able to function really. I couldn't put on my own tourniquet or anything. I was just in so much, not, well, sure. Not pain, but so much shock, I guess, um, that of what was going on that I couldn't really function. I just remember, um, a lot, a lot of physical injuries too. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. So you know, I'm, I'm not <laughs> running anywhere or doing anything. So no matter, no matter how I look at it, it's not going to happen that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's an experience that I'm so glad I remember because it's so humbling to me now. Uh, I just remember everyone, my medic, my platoon sergeant, the dismounts didn't even skip a beat. Uh, they got me on a litter and we're calling up the nine line within 10 minutes, probably. And, um, uh, you know, 
there's so much adrenaline going through your body that you don't really feel the pain. And the best way I try to describe that feeling is just imagine your entire lower half of your body being squeezed by a vice. There's just so much pressure that, uh, and it's weird to say it didn't even hurt. Like I didn't cry at all. Um, it just was a huge amount of pressure. Like <laughs> your body was being squeezed, I guess. And, um, I think, I think that's an incredible statement that you said that you're, you're happy to be able to have remembered cause it humbles you. Yeah, it does. You know, yeah, it took years for me to come to that uh, state of mind because, you know, when it first happened, I was very, um, upset at the world for no particular reason, just felt sorry for myself and, uh, had things happen since then that really, uh, completely gave my mindset a 180 degrees from where it was. But, um, how did that, how did that come about? Like, what was your recovery like? Like, well, how did you go from point A to point B? Took me five days to get back in the States. Um, I ended up getting medevac to Kandahar airfield where I had emergency surgeries done. And, uh, that was probably, did you end up on shoes on, on no, shoes table? So that happened when, <laughs> Okay. I, okay. That actually happened in San Antonio when I got back stateside, but um. Oh, so it eventually happened. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's incredible. It, I'm telling you, all these little things that have happened in my life makes me believe I'm here for a reason. So, um, I just have have to keep absolutely, you know, plugging that because we're all entitled to bad days. We just don't want to drag it out. So you got to remember all the good things. <laughs> you know, being completely terrified uh, when I was going, getting uh, rolled into the, the emergency room in Kandahar. Um, there's just that feeling you're so vulnerable and you're half naked for your own good and you're in pain and, you know, just seeing these people line up wanting to help you was in a way terrifying. But what really terrified me was knowing that I was ending up on the operating room table and I know what can happen on that table. Um, Mm. So it was one of the, you saw it. yeah, I saw it and it was one of this, another very cliche thing to say, but it was one of those things where as I was, uh, you know, getting put on the litter in the back of the striker, I was just wanted to keep my eyes open. Cause you know, there's always that scene in war movies where if you close your eyes, you're not coming back from that. Mm. And, uh, that's kind of something that really stuck in my mind. So I was terrified. But, um, you know, I had emergency surgery done in Kandahar. I spent the night there and that was the first time I saw my lower right leg, uh, was waking up, uh, from surgery after that. So it was pretty shocking <laughs> to see. Gotta it. be a little bit, a little bit of a relief. Like, Oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah, it was a relief. And cause I had already written it off as gone. And, um, wow. To see it was like, wow, you know, <laughs> I'm very lucky, not just because of that, but because I'm alive. And then, um, you know, I got to call to my parents. I called them at home. Uh, they had already gotten a call um, from, you know, the company commander that, you know, I was wounded, but they didn't know much more than that. And uh, when they finally got a call for me, it was very um, important for them to hear my voice, but to know that I was telling them that I was okay. Gotcha. Um, I actually, there's, there's another little funny story about that because I'm originally from Wisconsin, big Green Bay Packer fan. Oh, man. And I remember asking. I remember asking them because this is the year that Favre went to the Vikings. I'm like, is Brett Favre really a Viking? <laughs> <laughs> and you're in your drugged up stupor. Uh, oh, yeah. With your parents, you know, probably full, full of all kinds of stuff to, to keep. To oh, yeah. your, your, your thought was Brett Favre. 
Yeah, football Brett Favre. I'm like, our story's true. He's really a Viking. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, I got to spend probably no more than a day in Kandahar, and then I got flown to Bagram, where I'd spend another day. Um, and, you know, there's kind of a ironic story about that. And I can't remember exactly if it's when I flew from Kandahar or when I flew from Bagram, but uh, the transport plane we were on caught on fire. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, there was a compartment fire on the plane, and we had to divert back. And, um, you know, it's kind of like... <laughs> At this point, what else is going to happen? No kidding, no <laughs> kidding. So, but, did, uh, so, but you eventually, but you eventually made it back to the states. Yeah, yeah, I eventually did. Uh, spent two days in uh, Landstuhl, Germany, and then on the 18th, uh, so five days exact after, I ended up back where my story kind of began, Brook Army Medical Center, and um, I can't even imagine telling you, but the shock to see, or the shock for Doctor Shu to see that. Uh, Benjamin Breckheimer is on the OR table today. He's scheduled for surgery. Um, <laughs> wow. It, it was just completely, I'm just so lucky, so blessed to have such amazing people in my life. Um, I think, uh, you know, getting sent back to Brook Army Medical Center was probably one of the best things to happen to me because, you know, there's people that I worked with in the operating room there and I trusted them. I trusted him. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I spent four years there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, uh, I still have my leg to this day, so everything uh, worked out. What was your recovery like at the, at, the, at the medical center? Were there, what was the, I mean, were there dark days? Was it, was it a positive recovery? Yeah. How did, how did Dr. Shu help you through it? Um, you said, because you said he's one of your greatest mentors, so he had, I figured he had to have something at that point to help you out. You know, putting my trust into that was a big positive thing, and um, I come to find out that they could have easily amputated my leg. Um, but he decided against that because at the time, um, you know, when it rains, it pours, I was found out my wife is divorcing me. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so, you know, while, you, while uh, you're recovering while I'm recovering. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's like, he wanted to give me every chance to keep my leg, but he knew that mentally, you know, going through what I've already gone through to finding out I'm going to get a divorce. He's like, this is the last thing I want to do to this kid is to take his leg away from him. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, Oh my God. I, I always tell him that he, he knew me better than I knew myself at that time. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it, overall it was a very humbling experience. Uh, I wish it didn't take four years, but I'm glad it did because I still have my leg. Um, there were a lot of dark days, unfortunately, uh, especially after, uh, going through a divorce that was completely blindsided me, uh, to say the least. Yeah. Um, you know, you talk about piling on Jesus. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> but, uh, I was very lucky to have, uh, the Fisher house, my family, friends, Dr. Shu, and, uh, you know, it all helped me in the long run. It helped. They were my foundation, so to say, to build me up to where I am today. And when I, earlier I said, you know, I'm a firm believer that I'm here for a reason. Um, so, you know, going through all these hard times has built me up to where I am. So I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah. I watched the, um, the, was it WCNC story that, that they did on you? Uh, and they talked about your darkest oh, day. Oh yeah. Yeah, they did. They, that one there really talked about your darkest day. Would you, would you mind sharing that for, for all the audience here on Born the Battle and how you got through that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but I think it's very important. Um, you know, I had 
this immensely dark day, you know, knowing that I was getting medically retired from the military. I mean, cause that's all I knew from like you, I was 18 and that's all I knew until I was 25, I guess at that time. Yeah. And, yeah. um, uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. So we know when you're already going through a dark time, alcohol is a depressant. So that's probably the last thing you want to do <laughs> during that dark time is drink. Sure. Um, sure. But I, I was just really tired of hurting mentally, uh, emotionally. I uh, wanted to take the pain away. Um, I was drinking very heavily all day. And uh, I was honestly seconds away from ending my life. I was sitting at the edge of my bed in tears, um, just wanting to not be here anymore. I know it's, uh, another very common thing that, you know, people who go into that just don't want to be here anymore. They want the pain to go away. And, um, yeah, you know, I had my handgun, uh, and it was on my lap and my dogs were sitting to my left. And I remember for whatever reason, I remember looking to my left and my dog, Asia, you know, <laughs> She was just sitting there and for anyone that has dogs, they always have this really goofy look on their face and they're just <laughs> always happy, always excited. And honestly, just looking at her face really pulled me out of it. It got me to thinking, you know, that's awesome. If I were to end my life at this moment, uh, what would they do? Uh, what would they be doing to survive until someone found me? And then, uh, yeah. it got me thinking about my family and friends and instead of taking away my pain, I'm creating more pain. Um, so that's really when the light switch went on and I was like, wow, I, I really don't want to live like this anymore. Um, so, uh, really just realizing that, you know, in your darkest time, there's always still a glimmer of hope. And for whatever reason, just looking at my dog, uh, found that glimmer and you know family and friends are very important to uh talk to because they can help guide you through these things and i think that's a very important thing is to talk about it um yeah a very eye-opening experience that i was seconds away from pulling the trigger and uh for whatever reason i looked to my left and my dogs were there <laughs> thank god for them thank god for yeah them. yeah and they're still just as goofy as ever now <laughs> So, so at that point you got help, you went and talked to Dr. Shu and, and some others and your family and, um, and like, how did you? So honestly, at that time I was, I was still getting help. I was still seeing, uh, you know, psychiatrists and all that stuff, still taking medication, which I do today. Um, yeah. the one thing I noticed today is that I'm able to realize when, how do I want to put this? <laughs> um, so I started at a, at a certain dosage and then I like today I'm down to a quarter of what I used to take uh, voluntarily and it's been working amazing. And I think it's because of all the support I've had that I don't have these negative thoughts so much anymore. And uh, just realizing when I do need help, I'm, you know, forthcoming and able to ask for help without feeling ashamed or embarrassed because, you know, as uh, the warriors we are, uh, we like to think we're this huge, strong a person, but you know, when there's a time you got to ask for help, <laughs> but, um, absolutely. 100%. You know, it's, or just talk about it. Um, the, the, the episode that just dropped, 
uh, was, uh, or the, ep- the last episode, episode 170 was Dale Dye, you know, the actor. Yeah. Dale Dye has been in a lot of, yeah. So he was, the, he's your, he's the episode before you. Okay. And he taught, and he talked about the need to be able to talk about it. Yes. You can't just let it bottle up inside you. You had to go, he talked about going to find others that have been through similar experiences um, and, and to talk to them about it. So, yeah. And I think that's the um, perfect way. I know. Take off that negative stigma that always comes around with, you know, depression and suicide and just be like, you know, all these, like, he's, like him, an actor, you know, he's going through it too. Maybe not in the same way, but you still got those same feelings. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he went through Way City in Vietnam oh, geez. and, you know, he went through, th- I, I didn't know all this before. I, I just knew him as the actor, right? Um, yeah. He had gone through 31 operations uh, as far as military op- combat operations, three tours of Vietnam. Uh, three purple hearts and a, and a, and a Ron star with a combat V. I didn't know all of that before, before interviewing him. And then I did my research. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, and he talked about way city and he talked about the need for, um, to be able to talk about it with somebody else. I don't, I don't, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought I saw a little bit of a parallel between you and him. Yeah. Uh, so if, if, if you're listening to this episode, uh, if you're interested in that one, go ahead and check it out. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you were medically retired in 2013. Yes. How did you find your way to mountain climbing? And do you feel like that's helped you with, you know, everything, you know, dosage and all that stuff you were talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a little backstory, like I honestly had zero experience with mountaineering or climbing. I didn't, before any of this happened, have any, uh, desire to climb a mountain, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, uh, it kind of, I remember in high school, I, I do a lot of you know, backtracking. I remember a lot of things. <laughs> um, but I remember in school, uh, at the end of the week, we'd get Newsweek articles, uh, you know, about the pre- past week's, you know, okay. current events, sort of say. And I remember uh, Mount Everest and the dangers of it. Yeah. Uh, being on the cover of one of them. And kind of, you know, this is where my mindset was at at this time. Uh, I wanted to climb this dangerous mountain to prove something to my ex-wife. Um, so <laughs> it's the, thank you, ex-wife, yeah, thank you, ex-wife for yeah. the motivation. Exactly. Yeah. I just started reaching out, uh, through social media to all these guiding agencies and renowned climbers. And I finally got an email back from, uh, Dennis Broadwell and mountain gurus out of Washington state. And, uh, I told him about my, yeah, story. I'm from, I'm from Washington state. And I noticed that I noticed that your first mountain was Mount Baker. Yes, exactly. So that's where <laughs> Yeah. So he, uh, basically took me under his wing and, uh, recommended I start doing like a mountaineering expedition course. So I went to Mount Baker in Washington state. Uh, it was a week long course and, you know, it's a 10,000 foot mountain. And, uh, it, looking back at it now, that's, yeah, Baker's that's, no joke. It's no joke. Looking back at it now, it's, it's a significant mountain, but, uh, you know, unfortunately I just, bit off more than I could chew and I didn't make it to the summit. Um, I was kind of bummed out about it, but not too much because, uh, Dennis really pulled me aside and was like, I'm seeing what these mountains are doing for you mentally. And I really want you to stick with this. Cause uh, I mean, just you're enjoying yourself, you're connecting with other people and you're, you know, inspiring these other able-bodied people to, you know, push themselves. And he gave me the opportunity to climb Mount Rainier probably a month later, not even, and, you know, that's 14,000 foot mountain. Um, a little higher. A little yeah. higher. Um, <laughs> just wait, it gets better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, I didn't reach the summit. And uh, this time I was kind of like ready to throw in the towel. But, you know, he really 
he really just wanted to help me and he wanted to see me succeed. And he's like, I got this opportunity for you to go to Mount Elbrus in Russia. And I had never even, <laughs> never even heard of this mountain. And, uh, once I did the Google research, <laughs> it's, uh, you're like ta- yeah. <laughs> tallest, tallest one yeah, in Europe. Yeah. You know, 18,510 <laughs> feet. No big deal. <laughs> I love, and, and I'm sorry, his name again is, uh, Dennis Broadwell. Okay, I love I love Dennis, man. I love this guy already because he's like, oh, you failed at Baker? Cool. Try Rainier. Oh, <laughs> fail Rainier? Let's go try the highest mountain over in Russia and Europe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or, you know, or Eurasia or whatever one you want to call it. Yeah, it, 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 was, uh, it was an awesome experience because that was the very first mountain I topped out on at, you know, 18,510 oh, feet, I believe. And, uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it without him or the climbing team that he had put together because they really encouraged me to keep going. And, uh, cause it, uh, you know, failing on 10,000, 14,000 foot peaks, you know, mentally I'm like, how am I going to get up this? <laughs> <laughs> like how in the world? Thanks. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just keep pushing yourself, man. Keep doing it. You got this far, keep going. So I'm like, and, and you know, physically I was not, doing bad i you know my leg kind of hurt uh but you know in regards to high altitude i was doing very well and there was no reason to not keep going you know as long as i had enough gas in my tank and um yeah august 1st 2014 i believe it was that that year i topped out and it was such an incredible feeling um you know just oh i bet i bet all that hard work and and all that pain just made it so worth it. And I really fell in love with it. And, um, you know, for the four years I was divorced, I would carry around my wedding ring and I actually had it on chain around my neck. Um, because my goal was to throw it off the summit of Everest. (laughs) Um, Did you? No, no, no. Hold on. Um, I actually (laughs) had it on this expedition in Russia and, uh, I decided to finally let go and I launched it off the mountain. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. That's so, awesome. You know, it's like, I don't even need Ed- Everest. Elvis is good enough. It, she don't deserve Everest. Exactly. <laughs> and, it's uh, awesome. you know, that little, not even one ounce thing that held me down for so long as it was the weight of my shoulders. I was finally able to let go. And, uh, you know, I started, I wasn't climbing for her anymore. I was climbing for me. That's um, awesome to hear. I had, I, I had a new passion. I had a new love. I had a new goal. And that's what really jump-started me on, you know, trying to achieve the seven summits. Which se- which seven? Because I know the seven can mean a mixture of about nine different summits, right? Correct, yes. Okay. So the uh, original seven summits, uh, are, uh, for those that don't know, it's the t- tallest peak on each continent. Um, yeah. So, so it was Mount Everest, Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount Everest, and that was on uh, May twenty second, 2017 which was my second attempt. Gotcha. Um, my, my first attempt was in 2015. And unfortunately that, uh, expedition ended because of, uh, the tragedy that happened, uh, with the earthquake and avalanche in Nepal. Got you. Yep. Um, yep. So I got to, so you were on, you were cat. on Everest during that earthquake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I had just made my way down from camp one through the Kumbu ice fall and was walking towards base camp when the earthquake happened. And, um, you know, uh, that was probably the most terrified I've ever been in my life. Uh, more terrifying than IED blast by far. Oh my God. Um, cause you know, 
the IED blast was instantaneous. You didn't see it coming. But then uh, once you see an avalanche rolling at you, you have no idea what's behind it. Oh, um, my God. But uh, myself and my climbing partner, Purba, were very lucky. Uh, we got the tail end of the avalanche. And unfortunately, uh, 18 people at base camp weren't so lucky. They ended up losing their lives. Oh and then I believe there was probably 80 to 90 more wounded. Um, but just as a whole, a country in a whole, Nepal. Oh, my God. Um, they, they lost a lot of individuals. And it was a very... Uh, it was very interesting to see um, how they responded, especially on the mountain. It was very eerie in a way because they, I think back to, you know, when I got wounded, everyone responded in such a efficient and professional manner that they, you knew you were going to be okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, I kind of, you know, for the year after I got off Mount Everest in 2015, I didn't really do any more climbing. Um, I just kind of needed to get my bearings again because, you know, my family likes to joke. I'm like a cat. I'm down to six lives now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I'm sure that was a very traumatic experience as well. I mean, you're, yeah, it was. You know, that's incredible. It's, that's, that's, and wow. After that year long hiatus after Everest, I kind of got the encouragement um, by reaching out to another nonprofit called American 300. And, uh, I've, since then I've been doing a lot with them. Um, so American 300 is a nonprofit. Uh, it's involved with, um, sharing stories of re resiliency. Uh, we go out to military bases all across the world. Um, since I've been with them, I've gone to, uh, Kosovo, Germany, England, Honduras, um, and a bunch of bases here in the States and just was sharing my story because, you know, we like to provide relevant and relatable individuals to these service members to know that, you know, there's a face behind these people making these claims that they were depressed or going through this and that. But, um, once they heard my story and they heard that, you know, I honestly didn't have any more money to keep climbing sure that they wanted to help me finish off climbing the seven summits. So, uh, they got me to go to Mount Aconcagua in Argentina. And then I went to Karsten's pyramid in Indonesia and, uh, Mount Vincent, just this past January in Antarctica. And, uh, in May I went to Denali for the expedition, um, on the mountain for just about two weeks. And we were at, uh, camp three. Uh, there's one more final camp before the summit push. And, uh, we heard there was weather coming in and we were kind of running out of days to be on the mountain. Yeah. And, um, unfortunately we made the uh, decision to kind of call it, so, so Denali, so Denali is your last peak. You Correct. got another plan. You got another plan for that one. Yeah. The plan is to go back again, uh, this coming May and hopefully with, uh, better results, I will be the first purple heart recipient or combat wounded veteran to, uh, finish the seven summits. That's awesome. Are you, uh, are you the only one racing for this goal or are you in competition with somebody? Um, honestly, I don't really know. Um, you know, my initial goal was to be the first Purple Heart to summit, but you know, because of what happened in 2015 and then there are two teams uh, ahead of me that went in 2016 and I couldn't go. Um, yeah. but, uh, Charlie Linville and, uh, uh, Chad Jukes, uh, they both summited in 2016. So I was a third Purple Heart recipient to summit Everest, but, uh, um, so, okay. 
Gotcha. Um, but, but you're looking to get the seven, get the seven. Yeah. Get the seven. Um, I think for me, it's a great goal to have. Um, I know my family really appreciates that I have a goal. Uh, they don't really enjoy the fact that I'm gone for weeks at a time and there's incoherent dangers involved. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, they, they like to see what it's done for me. And honestly, uh, after I summited Everest and all these people are reaching out to me, um, you know, just telling me how my story was so inspiring to them. I just want to keep showing them and keep pushing myself to try to achieve these great things. And hopefully that, you know, lights a fire under other people that, you know, not to let their dark times let them down. And, you know, we live in a society where we want instant fixes to everything. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, with mental health, there is no instant fix. You really just got to ride it out. And uh, if you're lucky, you'll have friends or family that will help guide you through that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you got the summit coming up. Uh, you've been speaking with other veterans. Now, like Dale Dice was talking about, uh, you know, you have to getting it out. It was cathartic to him. Writing it out was cathartic <laughs> to him. Uh, yeah, for you speaking to about it, is that cathartic for you? It's an amazing thing for me. Uh, cathartic is a very good word um, because I remember – back in high school having to do presentations and I just was terrified. Um, but when I get out into these big crowds of a hundred plus and start telling my story and just letting myself become vulnerable, they see that I'm a real person. And, uh, I've been very lucky to have individuals pull me aside after I'm done talking and, uh, they share their story with me. And in all honesty, their story is just as inspiring as mine because I kind of think about it. I'm like, wow, how did you get through that? Um, wow. and there's another individual, uh, I won't put his name out there, but I keep in contact with him and we're pretty good friends now. Uh, he was one of those individuals that pulled me aside because, um, you know, I had spoken at a base that he was at and he heard me speak and then lo and behold, I go to another base and he's there and he's like, man, I got to pull this guy aside and tell him about my story. And, um, long story short, he had a infant die from a crib death. And, uh, mm. he was going through a really tough time, he and his wife. And, uh, he asked that I'd carry something, um, for his daughter to uh, the summit of Mount Everest. And he made up these patches and I carried one for me and one for him. And by God, uh, there were days that I wanted to quit on that mountain, but I took those patches to the summit and took a picture with them for him. So I'd get him closer to his daughter and sent him back with the picture. And he's just such an amazing individual. I'm so proud to be able to do these things for people because it means a lot to me. That's, that's, that's outstanding. That's outstanding. Um, now are you writing a book as well too? I noticed on a blog that they talked about writing a book. Yes. Um, uh, man, you, you've done your research. So I am working on, I, mean, I, only, I mean, I only had a day. Can you imagine if I had a week? <laughs> um, yeah. So I am working on a book. Uh, the original plan was to finish it this year. Um, but I'm really, well, the real reason it's not done is because I'm lazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but, but honestly, there's a part of me that wants me to finish this last summit before I actually finish it to tell the oh, whole Oh yeah. Your story is not done yet. Exactly. The story's not, not over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I really want to finish the seven summits and then, um, finish the book. And I had these big goals of, you know, skiing to the South pole. Um, I don't know. If I'm really going to do that, but it's something that's been kind of on the back of my mind, 
Uh, you know? Yeah, maybe the, maybe the Iditarod, you know, so, yeah, maybe something. fly to the moon. You yeah, got, hey. you got, you got to keep it going. I got to keep it going somehow. Exactly. I, you know, <laughs> there's days where I sit there and think, I'm like, what am I going to do after I'm done? I'm going to go like diving with great whites or something cool. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> My wife wants to do that. And I don't understand why. Um, like she wants, she wants to do the open water oh, diving. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah right crazy right and i'm like like we were in we were in hawaii and she was like hey I, you know this is the thing it's like you know it's only certain people she's really trained open water diving with sharks and i'm like absolutely not i mean i i, I mean like you i like my adrenaline but no yeah absolutely not yeah no that's that's a little too hardcore for me and the thing the funny thing about it all is i'm terrified of open water <laughs> i am just <laughs> right terrified of that to begin with but then to put me in this little cage and have these giant sharks come after me i mean (laughs) we're gonna have to clean that wetsuit after i'm done (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome um so you and i we connected through mutual contacts at the fisher house um earlier we had in the podcast uh, if you look in the archives we had the president david coker on the show Mm -hmm. um what is your involvement in the fisher house foundation today First time I got exposed to the Fisher House was when I was stationed uh, before deploying to Iraq um, and Burke Army Medical Center. Uh, I knew yeah. uh, next to nothing about it. I just knew that that's where you know our wounded service members would go with their families. And I didn't really think too much of it um, until you know I got the full experience <laughs> in 2009, uh, getting wounded and coming back. Um, yeah, we were fortunate enough, my family and I, and a couple friends who would stay with me. Uh, if my family couldn't be there, we'd stay in the Fisher house. And I was there after I got discharged from the hospital and was on outpatient status. I was probably in the Fisher house for three months. And, um, Mm. that environment is such an amazing environment. It's so positive. So did your, did your, did your family stay there too during your recovery? Yeah. So they had a couple beds and, you know, if, if it wasn't my mom, um, it would be my sister. If it wasn't one of my sisters, it'd be my other. So they take turns staying with me uh, while I was going through recovery. And, um, you know, what I will say is that is such a positive environment to be in because for one, I mean, it, it really, it relieves that, uh, you know, financial burden on your family, you know, trying to find a place to stay on short notice and spending so much money, but they, you know, provide your family and you a place to stay for free. And uh, not only that is they'd have, you know, volunteers come in and, do lunches or dinners, but more importantly, you'd be living essentially in a house with, um, I'd call it the real world in a way. (laughs) So (laughs) it's it's like a really sick version of the real world. (laughs) Um, uh, But you're with individuals who are going through the same exact thing you are. And if, and their family members are going through the same exact thing as your family members. So you're able to connect on such an intimate and personal level with these people that, you know, they eventually become friends and then like family after that time. Uh, So it's just an amazing positive environment to grow with, uh, grow up in, well, not grow up in, but uh, grow with that, uh, you know, I'm since uh, having that experience, I volunteer to golf in the Fisher house outing back home in Wisconsin. And uh, that's when I got into contact with an individual there who uh, heard more of my story and wants me to help uh, with an article for them. And then, um, you know, as 
you start putting yourself out there more and more people hear your story. And now I'm on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. That's awesome. Benjamin, what is, uh, what is one veteran life hack that you'd like to share with other veterans? Uh, bite your tongue. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Bite your tongue. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things you want to say, but you probably won't be able to get away with it. And, uh, I guess the real world, so to say. Uh, so bite your yeah. tongue. Uh, not from personal experience, but I, I hear stories. So uh, definitely that. Um, you know, just my other life hack is live a great life. Uh, you know, there's life after the military. Uh, there's a lot of life after the military. Uh, so yeah. don't be afraid to yeah. get out of your comfort zone, climb mountains, go great white shark diving, skydive. Um, you know, our stories don't end just because we're veterans. Yeah. I, I I used to tell my Marines, uh, you know, there was, and I would say their first name before you were, and I would say like Lance Corporal or Corporal, you know, there's, there's life after you take off the uniform. Exactly. Whether you do four years to 20 years, 30 years, all of us eventually have to face that, that reality. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so there's, there's other people that have done it and done it well. So go find those people. Exactly. I'm still, you know, I look up to, you know, like my friend Dan Bayerai, owner of Combat Flags. He's donated uh, in the three years he started his company. He's donated $60,000 towards Stop Soldier Suicide. Mm. And, uh, you know, I look up to him and I'm like, man, you make me, I got to do more. <laughs> I'm like, you make me look bad. That's awesome. Here I'm all selfish climbing mountains just to be the first. <laughs> uh, Benjamin, what is one thing that you learned in the military that you apply to your life today? Oh, boy. Um, discipline. Uh, that's one of those things that, you know, doesn't go away. You know, like like we both stated, your life isn't over after just because you're a veteran now. I mean, just stay disciplined, um, keep a clear head. and um, be thankful. I mean, I've had a lot of support in my own life from not only friends and family, but also from individuals that I didn't, uh, didn't know personally. Um, for an example, uh, I have three individuals in New Zealand that are my sole sponsorships for climbing. Um, so, you know, they heard my story. They love my story. They love me. I finally got to meet and climb with them, got to stay with them in New Zealand. And there's just so many good people out there in the world. Um, So be open-minded because you never know who's going to fall into your life. Very good. And Benjamin, um, is there, and I know we've mentioned a lot of nonprofits, but is there another veteran or nonprofit in the veteran community that you can point to as being a great example for the community? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Creative Vets. It's actually founded by Richard Casper, who's a Marine Corps veteran. Wow. And uh, he had gone through struggles with PTSD and losing one of his best friends in battle. And uh, he uses artwork and songwriting uh, as his, um, you know, I guess, uh, antidepressant. And it's been doing amazing things. I was able to be a part of the program uh, in Chicago at the School School of the Art Institute of Chicago uh, for two weeks. And, and, uh, you know, just being able to, the way I say it is, if you're not able to speak about it, you're able to draw it or paint it in some sort of fashion. So painting that story or writing about it through song, uh, I think that's very important uh, for individuals who just have a hard time, you know, I guess talking about it normally. <laughs> I don't gotcha. know if that's the right way to say that. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, it's uh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
But I also want to point out another nonprofit. Absolutely. Purple Heart Summits, it started pretty much because of me. Uh, it's a nonprofit under American 300. Um, and it started just taking uh, not necessarily combat wounded individuals to climb mountains, but, you know, family members or other veterans, uh, people that want to support veterans, they come climb mountains with us. And we actually uh, did a climb on Mount Rainier this past August. So I actually topped out on Rainier this past August. Nice. Um it's, you know, like, it's, like losing, it's like losing a boxing match and then coming back and then, and then winning, you know? Oh, yeah. We, we laid siege to that mountain. Everyone, <laughs> everyone powered through it, um, you know, between the four uh, combat wounded people that we were with. There's a total of eight Purple Hearts. And, wow. I mean, we, we absolutely crushed that mountain. And I think it really, uh, what we like to say is it's mentoring in the mountains, you know? It's just such an amazing thing to be able to take out veterans or actually some of these guys are still in the military. So I shouldn't even say veterans. Oh, but, some, uh, act, some active duty. Yeah. Some active duty. And for them to say, wow, you know, this 14,000 foot peak is the toughest thing I've ever done in my life. I'm like, what? You're maybe EOD special operations. <laughs> wow. So, you know, kind of hearing that is, is pretty amazing. And especially, Getting them out there in the fresh air and away from technology is always a good thing. <laughs> Got you. Well, Benjamin, um, you are going to be the Veterans Day episode of Born the Battle on Veterans Day week. Oh, perfect. Well, um, I'm definitely honored. Yeah. Uh, what, what would your one message to all veterans be that, that may listen to this episode? Uh, you know, my message would be don't ever be afraid to ask for help. Uh, because honestly, you don't know what any other person is going through uh, or what they have gone through. And they might just have that uh, little uh, bullet point that makes you want to be a better person, I guess. There are nearly 2 million women veterans who served and deserve the best care anywhere. VA offers comprehensive primary care, specialty care, mental health care, and women's health specialty care. Women veterans who are interested in receiving care at VA should call the Women Veterans Call Center at 1-855-VA-WOMEN or contact the nearest VA Medical Center and ask for the Women Veterans Program Manager. For more information about benefits, visit www.va.gov slash womenvet. I want to thank Benjamin for taking the time to come on the show. You can find out more about Benjamin and his endeavors at Benjamin Breckheimer. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N Breckheimer, B-R-E-C-K-H-E-I-M-E-R, all one word, dot com. All right, as we all know from the last episode, November is Native American Heritage Month. And this week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Army Veteran, is Army Veteran Herbert K. Pilau. Pilau was born and raised in Waianae to William Pilau and Abigail Kaliaha. Kaliaha. I hope I said that right. In the working class suburb of Honolulu, in what was then the territory of Hawaii. He was the ninth of 14 children, nine brothers and five sisters. His parents were both native Hawaiian, and his mother, Abigail, was the one that spoke English and Hawaiian. Pilau was a talented singer and ukulele player and an avid reader. 
After graduating from high school in 1948, he studied administration, secretarial work, and accounting. Drafted into the Army, he attended basic training at Fort Shafter. He was sent to Korea in March of 1951 and served as a private first class with Company C, 23rd Infantry Regiment, 2nd Infantry Division. Volunteering to be his, squ volunteering to be his squad's automatic rifleman, Pilau carried the BAR. In August, he participated in the Battle of Bloody Ridge, in which 2nd Infantry Division attacked and captured a ridge in East Central Korea. Their next objective was a hill mass just north near Pieri, which would come to be known as Heartbreak Ridge. And even though we're telling an army story as a Marine, you know the name of that ridge. From here, I'm going to transition into his citation. PFC Pilau was a member of Company C and distinguished himself by conspicuous gallantry and outstanding courage above and beyond the call of duty and action against the enemy. The enemy sent wave after wave of fanatical troops against this platoon, which held a key terrain feature known as Heartbreak Ridge. Valiantly defending its position, the unit repulsed each attack until ammunition became practically exhausted and it was ordered to withdraw to a new position. Voluntarily remaining behind to cover the withdrawal, PFC Pilau fired his automatic weapon into ranks of the assailants. Through all of his grenades, and with ammunition exhausted, closed with the foe in hand-to-hand -hand combat, courageously fighting with his trench knife and bare fists until finally overcome and mortally wounded. When the position was retaken, more than 40 enemy dead were counted in the area that he so valiantly defended. His heroic devotion to duty, indomitable fighting spirit, and gallant self-sacrifice reflect the highest credit upon himself, the infantry, and the U.S. Army. Herbert Pilau was the first Hawaiian to receive the Medal of Honor. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just email me at podcast at va.gov. Just need to send an email. Include a short write-up or a link and let us know why you would like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And, you know, doesn't have to be combat related, could be any veteran. If you like this episode and haven't subscribed yet, please do. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, pretty much any podcasting app known as cell phone, computer, tablet, or man. And as always, for more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov. And follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week.